Okay, that's on. Okay, we have a giant class here today. We've got a giant class here today. We've got uh, folks sick. We've got folks traveling. We've got mom, who if she comes, she'll be 10 minutes late as always. So um, we'll go and read the psalm before we get into anything else. Let's see here. Psalm 119, verse 121. This is the letter Ayin, which basically means I. And uh, let's see here, I as in the eyeball. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Just a couple verses. You've got the word. You've got the statutes. You've got... um, testimonies, you've got the commandments, you've got the precepts, all of those in just a couple of verses there. So, uh, uh, you know, the Psalm 119 is one of those things that's always read that directing you back time and time again to the Word and to God's law and, and hopefully to a right application of it because... Yeah, you've have, got the understanding down there. Understanding, yeah. And that's in Luke twenty four forty five. Then he gave them understanding. Understanding, understanding. absolutely. Yeah, I didn't even catch that. Good. So uh, anyway, we got a uh, uh, few prayer requests today. Uh, Paul, this morning, who opens us, if you watch online for a long time, he opened us, uh, and then in the ICU, he, uh, uh, he, I don't know, something last night he went in for some troubles, and he gradually got worse. He couldn't breathe at all, so they, they took him to the cardiology section, then to the ICU, and I went and spent uh, some time with him this morning, and he, he was much better when I left there than when I got there, but it's only because they had taken off some of the full-face mask oxygen and all that, but they don't know what's wrong with him, and I don't think they want to let him go until they know, because this has gone on so long, and uh, he's obviously weak anyway from all the medicine and all the things he's been taking, but we want to keep Paul in prayer. He's just really struggled these past four months. And um, and then we have Don, who he attends online. He watches all the Bible studies, and he's, uh, I've I've brought him up quite a few times. He's um, in the hospital as well, and he's been suffering from some blood, blood, uh, uh, internal bleeding or some bleeding. I'm not sure exactly what, but uh, he's still struggling with that. And they didn't want to let him go until that was resolved. And as of yesterday, it wasn't resolved. But... He's looking at the positive side of it because he said that I get to talk to the doctors about the Lord. And, uh, you know, Paul will be, too, if he's well enough. He's very tired when I saw him today. But Don is in there talking to him about the Lord, and he says there's Christians in there, so he gets to pray with them, etc. So we're happy about that, but we want to keep Don in prayer. And, you know, of course, we have all of the uh, people, uh, Lisa, D and Nance, put together that uh, uh, prayer list, and if you want to join it, all you have to do is let me know, and I can send that to you. But uh, she's always sending out prayer requests. All the people that are listed on there, and she sends them out immediately. And been very faithful about doing that over the past few weeks. And so there are a lot of people on that, and we'll just lump them all into one thing. Um, we've got people traveling, we've got people gone, and Carol just showed up, so we got a big class now. But we'll go to the Lord in prayer 
Lord, we do thank you for the chance to come to you and pray for all of these people, the ones that are on the prayer list that uh, you know about and uh, that others are praying for. And uh, specifically today, we want to pray for Paul, who is still really struggling. And it's got to be a scary thing when you cannot breathe. So we would pray that you would keep him from that in the future and bring him back to health. And we'd also pray for Elaine, who's had a very long day from last night through today, struggling with this as well. And it's got to be debilitating on her. So we want to lift her up. And also Don, who's still in the hospital, we want to pray for him. And certainly, Lord, we would be remiss if we didn't pray for all of the people out in Texas right now that are really struggling with the loss of homes, family, just businesses and uh, uh, income. And at the same time, they're still flooded. It's a very difficult situation. And on top of that, then we have the regular scum of society that's out there causing more trouble for them by stealing and looting and we would ask that they would be taken out by the police so that they wouldn't be harming people's livelihoods and just look out after these people and their property Lord we would ask you to do that and we would also ask that you would get them quickly back into their homes and safe and we thank you as I said for the chance to come to you and to pray for these things and also to ask you to guide us in your word today. We thank you for your precious word, which is so wonderful. And we commit this uh, time to you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. They had a picture on there of uh, about 30 guys. Looting? Said, you loot, we shoot. Oh, absolutely. They showed all these guys with their guns. <laughs> Good for them. I'm glad that's out there because, you know, we've got trouble in the world, and the last thing you need is to have people that don't care about other people's property. And uh, I would have no problem with either shooting them or giving them lifetime sentences in jail. I'd have no problem with that at all. They're, they're causing damage to people. They're causing all kinds of harm to uh, people's livelihood who are already in a, a bad way with uh, what's happened. There's going to be loss. Even if insurance covers everything, there's still loss. You've lost possessions. You've lost family memories and all kinds of things. And then you get people that are doing that. And it just doesn't, it goes nowhere with me. So, you know, the, the Bible does say that if a person steals because he's hungry, if he gets caught, he's got to pay it back, what, fourfold, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for it. These people have no right to other people's property. So as far as I'm concerned, concerned you loot, you shoot. And then we've got, the, I see Pat just showed up. So um, seven, uh, we're in Romans 7, verse 16. And um, hi, how are you there, Sandy? You doing all right? Good, good to see you. Let's see here. I'll, I'll read back from verse 13, just because that's the beginning of a paragraph, and uh, uh, it was one of the certainly nots that uh, we read. It was last week. Has then what is good become death to me? And Paul says, certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. And that last one was verse 16, so that's where we're at right now, and I'll read it one more time. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So this verse is an obvious truth. If the thing that I will to do, which is based on the law, 
And then we see the previous verse's example concerning the people of Israel at the giving of the law. If that is the thing that I don't practice, and the thing I do is the thing I will not to do, which is something contrary to the law, then I agree with the law that it is good. It's obvious, right on its surface. It's a little confusing because we've got a lot of will to do's and not, and the, the uh, language gets a little difficult. But how are you, Pat? Good. Is Cindy here too? Oh yeah, I see you're coming in. Yeah, all right. So um, we'll uh, let's see here. So um, I agree with the law that is good. And so to get this straight, because the wording can be hard to grasp, and I acknowledge that, just think of a law which is good and reasonable. Say, for example, keeping the posted speed limit of 40 miles an hour. I don't like that. Let's say 50. Okay, <laughs> so we're going to keep the posted speed limit at 50 miles an hour. I want to keep the law, and probably for more than one reason. For example, I know the law is there to protect others. I certainly don't want to run other people over, and if you're out on 41 and you're going more than 50 miles an hour, which actually it's 45 on 41, but um, uh, you know, if you're going too fast and somebody's on the side of the road, you can't adjust and you may run somebody over. So um, uh, where are we? Um, I want to keep the law, and probably for more than one reason. I don't want to run people over, and the law is there to protect property. I don't want to skid out of control because I'm driving faster than what is prudent, and road engineers are always right. We know that. The law is also there to protect me. I don't want to end up in the hospital or in a wooden box. And for these and other reasons, like maybe getting a speeding ticket, I will do what the law requires. However, this is the thing that I don't practice. And I will admit to that. I often don't practice what the speeding limit says. And that's a failing of mine. I don't pay attention sometimes. I go 45 without realizing when I should be going 40. Maybe I'm late for an appointment and so I speed, promising myself that it's just this one time. Or I may have a broken speedometer and my guesswork is faulty concerning the rate I'm traveling at. Now, nowadays, that's not a real big problem, but for years, all I owned was antique cars. I used to be a big buff of antique cars. And about 50% of the time, I had no speedometer. And so, you know, it's a cable. It would run from the thing down into one of the wheels and it would spin and if the cable broke, you had no speedometer, and so you'd have to guess based on everybody else around you. Well, they're probably doing the speed limit. So you never know what what uh, may cause you to violate the law. Like I say, you're not paying attention, you step on the gas, or you're in a hurry, you got a broken speedometer. All of these things could cause you to break the law. I'm trapped, okay, so I'm not doing what I actually will to do in each case, even in the late for the appointment thing. I'm late, it's my fault, and yet I'm breaking the law because now I've got two things going on. This is true because I wouldn't otherwise have promised myself anything. I'm just going to do it this once, but I'm promising. It, I will to do what is right, but in this instance, I don't do what is right. That's what Paul's saying. Let me read the verse again so you see what he's saying. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 15 said, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. That's what I'm speaking about there, but what I hate that I do. Okay, so um, in all three of the instances, I have I had something bad happen. When I wasn't paying attention, I ran someone over. When I was late for the appointment, I lost control and took out four mailboxes and one yard gnome. When I, my speedometer was broken, I got a $250 speeding ticket by the local sheriff. The thing I willed to do which was to obey the law and avoid all of these things is the thing that I failed to do. And the thing that willed that I willed not to do, which was to break the law 
and have all of these terrible things result? Well, that is what I did, and I suffered the consequences. So you see what's going on here. So this is just an example of driving in the speed limit, but it could be any precept under the law at any time. Even Adam and Eve. Okay, now they were deceived, and they we don't know the intent behind their minds, but any law that we are given, and we want to do it, sometimes we don't do it. And that is what Paul is getting at, and so he's making a statement about the law in that case. Now, before we go on, I'll finish my comments on this verse in just a second. Mom just walked in, too. I want you and you and you, because you weren't here, to know that Paul Stoll is in the ICU at the hospital. And so please keep him in prayer. That's the last I heard. I was there this morning. I don't do not know if they've taken him out of the ICU, but um, he, he could not breathe at all. And so they had to put him in there and force oxygen into him. And by the time I left, which was, you know, he'd already been in there for quite a few hours. But the time I left, they had him with the breathe on the nose tube and he was off of the forced oxygen but he was so tired so I don't know Elaine has not called me um, or told me anything since then so I don't know the status but he, he's going through all kinds of tests today so just keep him in prayer and if we hear more we'll let you know but um, anyway we'll go back and I'll, I'll read that last sentence again and the thing that I will not to do which was to break the law and have all these terrible things result, including running over that poor yard gnome, well, that is the thing that I did, and I suffered the consequences. And because of these things, I have to agree that the law is good. 40 miles an hour would have kept me from all of those things if I had obeyed it. And this is exactly what Paul is telling us. God gave Adam and Eve a law, and he had his good reasons for doing so. It's his world, it's his creation. He decided that he knows what is best, and he gave that law, we can't question it. When they broke that law and received the just penalty for their violation, I guaranteed they agreed that the law was good. As soon as they were kicked out of Eden, they knew that the law was good. And you see all of the result of it ever since then. Okay, in fact, one premise of the Bible after that point is that we have been trying to get back to Eden ever since. Regardless of whether we're doing it the right way or not, everyone, Everyone is looking for something better. You know what transhumanism is? It's where you take and you mix humans with um, uh, machine parts or you plug them into computers or people are doing this because they want to live forever. They're trying to get back to Eden. They're just not doing it the right way. But that's one example. You've got people that blow themselves up in the name of Allah because they think they're going back to Eden and they're going to get all kinds of supposed benefits in the, the uh, process. Everybody, even if they deny that they believe in heaven, believes in heaven. In one form or another, everybody does, and they are doing their best to get back there in one way or another. That's what Adam and Eve were doing, but all of us are trying to get back there. So regardless of whether we're trying to get back to Eden the right way or not, everyone is looking for something better. We know this world is a world of fault which ends in death, and we have to agree that the law was, in fact, good. Every law introduced by God since that time has continued this same overarching truth. Every single law that God has given has been a good law. It has never been something to harm the people, but he knew that they couldn't uh, meet the demands of that law, and yet he still gave them those laws. That's his choice. He gave them uh, those laws for several purposes, which we've talked about in the past. You know, one of them is to show how sinful sin is to God. Another one is to um, show us that nobody can meet God's standard. If they could, then you know there wouldn't be this problem between us. But he know, needs to show us that we are fallen and we need something other than our own attempts to reconcile ourselves to God. 
And that leads into the next one, which is to uh, take us by the hand and lead us directly to Jesus, who can fulfill the law, who can restore Eden to us, who can make all things new for us. All of these things the law had as its purpose. And there are many more. There are probably, I think one time I sat down in one of the commentaries, I think it's in Romans, and I came up with seven valid reasons for the law, why God would give it to us. And um, if it's in the Romans commentary, we'll get to it eventually. But these are why God did this, is to show us these things, to lead us to Christ, and to help us to understand why he can't just arbitrarily forgive sin, why he can't just arbitrarily overlook sin. Sin must be judged. He gives a law, there's a violation of it. He must judge that. All of these things are included under the premise of the law. So a little life, life application here. Far too often when we break a law, we attempt to divert the blame elsewhere. It's so much easier to do this, but if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit our faults and agree that if the law was a good and just law, that we failed. And this is especially true with God's laws when you fall short of his requirements. Confess it and ask him to redirect you towards obedience. Okay, Every law that God gave us, and once again, don't want to confuse you with that. Every law that God gave us was a good law. It was good for a specific purpose. You know, don't sew two, two types of um, uh, materials into a garment. Well, you can't see the reason for it. You say, why would God give that law? There is a literal reason for it, and there is a spiritual reason for it. The good literal reason is because back then clothes were, they were expensive. Nowadays, if you buy a shirt and you don't like it, you just throw it away or give it to somebody down the road, right? But back then, it took a much larger portion of your income to wear have clothes. So much so that if somebody was a debtor, they would give their cloak to the person as a pledge. I'm giving you this cloak, and the law specifically says you are not allowed to keep that person's cloak overnight because it's the only thing he has to keep warm with. That's how valuable clothes were. In the morning, he would return the cloak to the person he owed the money to. All right. But if you have two types of material, they will wear unevenly, especially when you have linen and wool. And when you wash them, they're going to fall apart quicker, whereas all wool, wool will last longer, all linen will last longer, but when you mix them, they won't. Nowadays, we don't have that problem. But that was one of the good reasons. But in a spiritual reason why they wouldn't put the two together is because one represents uh, uh, saved people, you know, uh, Israelis, and the other ones represent foreigners or, you know, non-saved people. And when you have two groups of people that are working together, they're not having the same goals. They're not meeting the same uh, uh, purposes. And that's why in the New Testament, Paul says, you know, that's right. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers because they have one set of priorities and we have another. Somebody has to compromise their priorities in order to make things work. Now, it's good if the non-believer compromises his whatever he believes in order to meet the Christian's uh, you know, goals and, and hopes, but that is very, very rare. That is, it, that is exceedingly rare that that would happen. Normally, what will happen is the Christian will have to give up his priorities in order to meet the non-believer's priorities. That's just the way it is. Same thing with when you're married. When you're married to a non-believer, it causes all kinds of grief in the home. I know people that are married to non-believers, and one goes to church and one doesn't. They don't have any fellowship on Sunday. They have nothing to talk about in regards to the Lord. When you're not talking about the Lord, your mind is on something else. Well, if you're talking to your wife, I don't know, how Hedico and I probably talk five minutes a week. So in those five minutes a week, if she's not a believer, I'm wasting those five minutes of 
the week not speaking about the Lord. But if she's a saved believer, probably those five minutes are going to be spent talking. Actually, we probably talk more than that, but it's close. Maybe eight minutes. Anyway, no, we, we just, we're not big talkers, Hedico and I. We got the perfect relationship because she knows what I love. I, I know what she loves, and we just try to, you know, and uh, I don't know. You know. People think I'm kidding, and I'm not. I'm just not a big talker as far as, you know, whatever needs to be done in the house. We've just come to this happy thing where we know what each other is thinking most of the time. So anyway, um, verse seven seventeen. But before I do that, I'm going to get up and I'm going to get a pen because I always want to have a pen handy and I always forget to get one. So here we go. And the camera just moved. I thought I'd have time to get the pen and get back before that, but I didn't. So um, verse seven seventeen says, But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, let me put a little mark there. And so verse 717, Paul continues to personify sin. He shows the contrast between sin and himself. And I make that a capital S in my commentary here because he's personifying it. He's making a contrast between this, this sin like demon and himself. The sin in him causes him to take actions contrary to the will that he wishes he could exercise. Once again, it's not sinful that I drive to the dentist to get my teeth fixed. I'll do that next Wednesday, okay? It becomes wrong when I go over the speed limit. And I won't call it sinful, but it's a violation of the law of Sarasota, which you're supposed to obey the laws that you're under. And so you could say it's sinful, but we'll just leave that out. And we'll just say that it's a violation of the law. I don't want to do it, okay? But sin is in me. It's forcing me because I'm late. And so I have to do it. And I've got this 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 struggle inside of me because this is going on, okay? So um, he, he uh, takes this personification of sin, and it's this sin in him that causes him to take these actions which are contrary to the will that he wishes he could exercise. All of this was made known by the introduction of the law, but it isn't the law's fault that these things have come about. He, and thus we, because when he's writing about himself, he's writing about human nature. So all of us, he's speaking in terms of the human being. He is being shown the truth of his nature and the contrast which wars inside of him. And if anybody doesn't have these type of troubles with some type of law, you know, tax time, does everybody here like paying the taxes at the end of the year? And you know, I don't know if you're like me, but I think, how could I get out of this? And then I think, well, that was a bad thought. I shouldn't do You know what I mean? But there's always something that you're doing in life that you think, I just don't want to do this. And you get these, these thoughts that go through your mind. Maybe I, can, maybe I can find another way. You think, no, i got to do what's right. You know, but it's just human nature. We have this struggle going on inside of us. And Paul is the first person to, to stand up and say, I deal with this as well. Okay. He's being shown the truth of his nature and the contrast which wars inside of him. And even the unregenerate people of this world know they have this war in their soul. It is universally displayed in humanity, in their writings, in movies, in plays, and in daily life too. Perfect example because I watched, um, we, Hidako and I have been, I, I've been, when I get a chance, my friend gave me a, a DVD on Victory at Sea. It's very long, and it, I, I watch a few minutes of it every day. They're in like 20-minute clips, and I, I usually get one in. And then if we have time, in the middle of dinner, when that ends, I'll turn on Star Trek. And so yesterday, we watched Khan. Remember uh, the Wrath of Khan? What well, was the original, where Khan is floating around in space for hundreds of years, and then they find his spaceship, and they, they revive him. And the girl 
that uh, it, it, she's the specialist on that age, that, that time frame in uh, history. They bring her onto the ship with him, and she sees him you know, still in his stasis, and she looks, and she's just smitten with him. Oh, right. And then she gets to know him, and she's more smitten with him because he's this big, handsome guy. And so now she has got a conflict. That's exactly what I'm saying. People write about these things. She has this conflict in her. Do I obey the commander? Do I, you know, let my heart go with this person? We'll call him Satan, and we'll call uh, Kirk. Uh, we won't call him Jesus, but we'll call him, you know, a, a, a good guy. Of God. The what? Yeah, he's the prophet of God or something. And so he's got to do what's right. Khan is going to do what's bad. And she's stuck with this dilemma inside of her. We all go through this. And in the end, she ended up doing what was right. But in the meantime, she was helping the bad guy because she, you know, she's got this war inside of her. People write about these things because they understand human nature. We all have this conflict within us, whether it's that type of a thing or whether it's you know, something you see on the side of the road that you know you shouldn't take, but, well, nobody's looking, and we, we see this all the time in movies. We see it in plays. We hear it on songs on the radio. We struggle with these type of things, even if we don't say we don't believe in God. So, anyway, in the end, Khan was uh, sent down to an empty planet. He was going to, you know, be the ruler of his own planet, and she chose to go with him. So, the problem was resolved at the end, but she struggled with it all the way through that. So she was the one that Paul would be writing about in that particular episode. So cultures and people talk about sin in terms that show us they understand this war, even if they haven't properly identified how it works. But Paul, by divine inspiration, is showing us the truth of the matter. And that's one thing I, I was reading Romans 1 one time, real early in the morning when I was still working at the wastewater plant. And... Um, uh, the morning girl who came in to re uh, replace me, she said, what's up? And I said, I, I just, you know, you read Romans 1, I can't think of anything that I've read that is more absolutely telling of human nature than reading Romans 1 and how he's defined it so perfectly. And she says, what are you talking about? I said, just read it. If you read it and you just set yourself apart from what you're reading and just say, is this true about human nature? you'll come to no other conclusion. Well, I don't know if she read it or not, but I said it is, it is absolutely as crystal clear as it could be. Why? Because it's under divine inspiration. Paul was writing what he knew to be true from his experiences under the law. He's writing of what he knew to be true because of the realities found in Christ, and he's writing what he knew to be true because the Spirit was leading him in those particular points that he wanted us to know and to understand. And it follows through with Romans 7 as well. If you just follow, if you think about what we're reading, not from somebody that's philosophizing, because there are philosoph uh, people that uh, teach philosophy all over the world with good-sounding arguments, but when you think them through, they're not good arguments. But this is a perfect argument. When he asks a question and then says, certainly not, we all know that the answer is certainly not, and then he explains why, and you say, of course, that's what he's doing right now with this. Okay, Paul, by divine inspiration, is showing us the truth of this matter. When we call on Christ, we are... What happens when you call on Christ? Ephesians 1, 13, 14. Sealed. Sealed. Sealed with the Spirit. That's right. When we call on Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is an indwelling that did not previously exist. And there will be a point of relief from this battle, but it is a battle. Hence, we speak of indwelling sin in the believer as well. The two are at war, and this is highlighted when we call on Christ. So let's not turn our eyes from the truths that Paul would continue to reveal to us. 
just because we've called on Christ does not mean the indwelling sin does not still it, it's still not a part of us it is and the difference is that we should have a greater understanding that it's there not a lesser one and then unfortunately we have a term for Christians that don't follow the word and that don't uh, go to church often what do we call them no, not hypocrites. Carnal. carnal. Carnal Christians, because they're living in this world and they're not being convicted by the Spirit which has sealed them. Okay? That doesn't mean that they're not saved. It means that they, if they are saved, they have just quenched the Spirit. What does Paul say? Do not quench the Spirit. Test the prophecies. Hold fast to what is good. He tells us to do all of these things. Because if we don't do those things, then we dry out. The Spirit is not filling us. We don't have you know, this this great thirst for the water of life that we had when we called on Jesus. And as I ask people, do you want to go back to what you were before? Is that what you want? Because you obviously didn't want to be there because you called on Christ. But we don't process it that way. We say, oh, I'm so tired. I Studying the Bible is hard and going to church takes time and I've got to do this and I've got to do that with my life. And you push everything out of the way and pretty soon you're back in exactly the same place you were before haven't lost your salvation, but you sure have lost the joy that you found in calling on Christ. We need to not do that. And that's why Paul gives us all of these exhortations at the end of all of his books. He says, do this and do this and do this. Let me read you some right now. Just there's a break because we, uh, we, uh, I was typing them today. Whoops, don't want to lose that page. Um, he gives you about 10 of them. It's like he's a boxer and he's just going to box you with this. He goes, Hang on here. He said, um, we're going to start with um, 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in um, verse 14. Now we exhort. He's giving you an exhortation. Okay? It's not a command. He's, he's saying, do this and things will be better. Right? If he said, I command, or as the Lord has commanded, then we need to make sure that we do it. Because if not, we are going to lose rewards. No doubt about it. You violate what it says, I command, or the Lord commands, you are going to lose your rewards. If you don't do it, what an exhortation says, you will probably lose rewards, but you will certainly lose your joy. Here's what he says. Okay, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted. He's like punching you now. He's just do this, do this. Uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Boom. Pray without ceasing. Bang. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Right? He just went through probably 20 exhortations in just a couple of verses. Anybody know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? No, that's only in the English Bible. In the English translation, you're correct. Rejoice, Rejoice always. Pantote charete. Now, there is a shorter verse in the Old Testament, but it has more letters, okay, more characters. It's, or it has three words. I'm sorry, it has less characters, but it's actually three words. It's like um, the three names of people. So, technically it's shorter, but in total number of words, it's not. So, rejoice always is, but then there is one in uh, the book of Luke. Um, some of the older translate, or I'm sorry, some of the Greek documents drop off um, um, uh, a part of that particular verse, and because of that, it's a little shorter than than uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. But those words do belong there, and so 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is the shortest. Now, pantote charete, but 
Jesus wept in Greek, listen to this, so it's much longer, right? But in the English, you're correct. So you get a point and you get a point. Um, anyway, but this is what Paul is asking us to do, is he's asking us to do these things so that we will be able to do, not face the struggle that he's talking about in Romans chapter 7. And if we're not in the Word, if we're not practicing the things that he exhorts, then we face all of these troubles right here. We are going to face them, we're going to continue to face them, and eventually that's all we're going to face because we're not going to go to the speed limit anytime because we're used to driving over the speed limit and eventually you are going to... Get nailed. That's right, you're going to get nailed. That is, that is the consequence and it's the same with any type of thing that you don't obey, whether it's God's law or whether it's a law within the land. If you don't do it, it gets easier to not do it and then eventually you're going to get nailed. So that's, um, that's uh, uh, Paul's exhortations are what we are to do. One thing I want to say, because a lot of people watch the Bible studies, and invariably I get emails every single week, and so I want to remind you that when Jesus is speaking in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is speaking to Israel under the law, nothing, nothing in Matthew, Mark, or Luke that Jesus says before his crucifixion is directed to the church. Okay, and the reason why I want to remind people of that is because if you uh, are, or when you are reading those passages and you say, I don't understand this, I'm going to send Charlie an email and I'm going to say, I don't understand why this doesn't match what Paul is saying here, it's because he's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to the Jews under the law in anticipation of the kingdom age. And so I just want to uh, have people not make that error. Always ask yourself, who is Jesus speaking to? And what is the reader trying to show us in those things? And the only reason, it's important for you to know that because eventually you're going to read something that Paul says, like we're reading right now about the law and about the struggle, and it's not going to match what Jesus says. And you're going to say, well, where's the problem? And a lot of people will dismiss Paul saying, well, we hold to Jesus' words, we don't hold to Paul's words. Guess what? Paul's words are Jesus' words. They're just in a different dispensation for a different purpose, which is the church age leading us in our salvation, not for salvation. Okay, so please remember that. I, I'll try to remember to say that every Bible study because it's something that we have to continuously remind ourselves. John is a different matter. Okay, and I've shown this before, the dispensations and how John fits in. It's a transition of the time of the law into the church age. So he's actually speaking to everybody. John 3.16 pertains to everybody on the planet. Okay, If you call on Jesus Christ, if you believe in the one that God has sent, then you will be saved. All of these things are reflected in the book of John. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we do not want to mix dispensations. Okay, going on. Um, let's see here. Life application. Did I do this? Yes. Weird. Okay, um, I did do that. Okay, life application. Yes, sin dwells in me, but greater than sin is the presence of the Holy Spirit, available to all who have called on Christ. It is he who can give us the victory over the fleshly man. Okay, and that brings us right back to what I was saying. How are you going to do that unless you know the Bible? Impossible. If you don't know what Paul tells us to do in order to gain victory over the fleshly man, then all you have is the fleshly man. People that say, well, I'm relying on the spirit that dwells in me in order to lead me every day, it ain't going to happen. 
You have to, you are passively filled with the Spirit, not actively. The Spirit is not going to lead a person that is not willing to read what the Spirit gave us, right? This is what the Spirit gave us. This is how we get filled with the Spirit, is by reading this Word and applying it to our lives. It will never happen, not in a jillion years, for you to walk a holy life unless you know what God expects of you in this dispensation. Paul's letters, Paul's epistles, explaining what the law means, explaining what's coming in the future, all of these things are from Paul for us, okay? All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction of the man uh, in righteousness, but it does not all apply the same way at the same time. Paul's letters do. They are what we need to know, okay? So let us remember that the filling of the Spirit is revealed as passive in nature. We must grant it to him through development um, of our Christian walk. Let us welcome the Spirit through study, prayer, fellowship, and a life which is obedient to Christ our Lord. Once again, where do we find out what is a life that's obedient to Christ the Lord? Right there. What's that? Paul's writings, that's right. With the whole Bible, but Paul's writings for doctrine, everything else is for edification, for instruction, instructing why we got to the point we're in. I don't ever want to dismiss the law, and obviously that's the case, because what have we been preaching in, on Sunday mornings for the past five, almost six years? The law. And yet we find Jesus every single Sunday, don't we? There's never a Sunday that we don't come out of a passage and say, Jesus was presented today, because the law is leading us to him. We're not under the law, we're under grace, but the law is there to show us what Christ is going to do someday for us, revealed in the obscure words that may be used only one time in the whole Bible. But why did God choose that one word in that particular place? Because he wants us to see Jesus. Okay, so that's it. Read it again. Study, prayer, fellowship, and a life which is obedient to Christ our Lord. But the obedience can only come through study, prayer, and fellowship. Okay, the last one is contingent on all the others because you can't be obedient to the Lord if you're not studying the Word, if you're not praying to God and talking to Him all day, and if you're not fellowshipping with other believers. You can study the Word and then go and hang out with unbelievers all day long, and all you're going to do is absorb what they have in their lives. Okay, and hence we have seminaries full of professors that teach theology that do not love the Lord, they don't have any personal relationship with Him at all. There's no heart for God in so many of the seminaries, and many of them aren't even seminaries anymore. Harvard is no longer, I wouldn't call that a seminary, but it was started as a seminary. Princeton, Yale, all of them. They were started as theological seminaries. I don't think you could call any of them a seminary anymore. They have, you know, a a section in there, you know, this is Harvard Seminary 4, but let me tell you what, they don't teach Jesus in those places, that's for sure. Whatever they teach, it's not not something that is going to edify anybody in Christ. All right, verse 718. Uh, let's see here. Uh, date 18, 718. For I know that in me, once again, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Now, remember when he speaks of the flesh, that can mean quite a few different things. The flesh can mean uh, the, the spirit of, I'm sorry, the body of the person. It can be the corrupt nature of the person. It can be actually, uh, you know, the private parts of the person. The flesh can mean several different things in Scripture. In this one, he's talking about the carnal man. In me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So let me read that again. He says, um, 
for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will, that's the inner will of the man, is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Okay, verse 7, 18. It was previously noted that Paul's personal pronoun, I, is being used to speak of his humanity. And thus, it is something that pertains to every single one of us. For I know, his words, for I know, is written to take us back to a statement that he is carnal and that he sold under sin. And this is now referred to as his flesh. As I said, the term flesh can have, or yeah, it can have several different meanings in scripture. In this case, it is speaking of his carnal man sold under sin. The physical being of man is fallen, and in us, Paul says, nothing good dwells. This is a state known as, does anybody know what that's called? Where nothing good is dwelling in man. It's a term they use in seminaries all the time. John Calvin uses it in his writings, and, you know, moderate Calvinists yeah, use it. And, what? Yes. Who's it? What? No. Total depravity. Yeah. Total depravity means nothing good dwells in me. And those are, I think I said this, that when I signed the statement at the uh, particular uh, college I went to, it was a very long statement. We are pre, uh, pre-tribulation. We're dispensationalists. We believe in this and this and this and this and this. In the entire statement, I read the whole entire statement and only those two words I wanted to know. I said, I am not going to sign this if they believe that total depravity means something different than I believe. And so I emailed them and I said, listen, I've read the entire statement. I agree with it. I can abide by everything you've said in here, but I want you to define to me what the words total depravity mean. And Dr. Potter, I think he's a doctor now, anyway, at the time he wasn't, but he emailed back and he said, "Um, this is our um, uh, take on what total depravity means. And I said, good. That's what I wanted to know. Because if you take it to the the Calvinist extreme, total depravity, then they believe that you have no free will in your choice. Nothing good dwells in me. It is impossible for me to make a good choice, etc. Okay? And I don't believe that. I believe that total depravity means that I am completely corrupt. I know that I'm completely corrupt, and I cannot save myself. There's nothing I can do to merit heaven. There's nothing I can do to merit God's favor. But I can see the good in what God has done, and I can choose that. Calvinism doesn't teach that. Calvinism says that there's nothing good in you. You can't choose good. You can't see good. All bad. No speck of any goodness in you at all. And I'm not saying there's any speck of goodness in me. But I can say that I see goodness over there. And I want that. And that is what I believe, is that we can choose, because of our free will nature, to accept what Christ has done. And that's what the Bible teaches when it says, what is it, how many wither, what's the word, um, um, whosoever's, yes. um, Calvinists will say, well, gee, I believe in uh, total depravity, but I just don't understand why there's so many whosoever's in the Bible, right? Well, why do you think? It's because whosoever. If you are willing to come, if you are willing to call on Christ, and what does Jesus say? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that uh, he gave his only begotten son that who, whosoever is regenerated in order to believe will not perish but ha- and believes will not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say that. It says believes. It implies free will, doesn't it? Okay, John 3.16 implies free will. And that's why those two words I was concerned about out of an entire long statement of doctrine. 
will I sign this document or will I not? He came back and he said, this is what we believe. And I put my thumb up and I signed the document. I sent it in and that's where I went, with Southern Evangelical Seminary in Matthews, North Carolina. Okay? If you don't believe that you have free will, I, I, I don't understand. I read another one of the commentaries this morning from him. And it, 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 you have to contradict yourself in your own sentences in order to say that you don't have free will, but you're saved by Jesus. Right? Jonathan Edwards preached about hell. Okay? Everybody knows the, the great sermon that he wrote. It was called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Most famous sermon ever preached on American soil goes back right to the beginning of our foundation. If you want to hear it, you can go right online and they have great people, eloquent orators that will reread his sermon. Just type it into your, your thing and listen to it. 20, 30 minutes long, whatever. It is outstanding. And everybody focuses on the fact that he speaks about hell when he's talking about the grace of God, which keeps you out of hell, right? But the point is, if why would you preach on hell? Right? Why would you do that? If you don't have free will, then what does it matter? See what I'm saying? What does it matter if Jonathan Edwards preaches on hell and you don't have free will to choose not to go to hell, then why would you preach to people on hell? Why would you do it? Why would you preach to them how to get out of hell? You are a sinner in the hand of an angry God, and here's Jesus, but you have no choice in the matter. The entire premise of what he is doing is saying, here is bad, here is good, now make the choice, right? It makes no sense to preach on such doctrines if you don't believe that you can choose Jesus. Okay, I know I'm beating that to death, but it's important. Total depravity is a very important issue. This term is perceived by scholars in a variety of ways. So I'm going to read you now what I typed on it, which I just said to you. I'm going to read a better analysis of it because I type with my fingers better than I think with my brain. Some go to the extreme that we are utterly corrupt and incapable of doing good or even responding to good. In essence, the image of God in man has been erased or is so significantly marred that we are utterly fallen, corrupt, and wicked. Others see total depravity as the image of God being effaced in man. Okay, think of uh, having a mirror and you just kind of take a, some um, uh, sandpaper and you scratch it. Okay, it's effaced. You can still see the image, but it's just it, been marred, okay? There's nothing good in and of ourselves, but we can see what is good and respond to what is good and choose what is good. The first one would be Calvinist. The second one would be what we would call moderate Calvinist. I believe in the Calvinist doctrine of depravity, but I don't believe that it completely wipes out the image of God and man. And what does it say in James? You curse man who is made in God's image. Well, if that's the case and we're totally depraved and we have none of God's image in it, then James couldn't say that, but he does. Okay? So, you know where I stand on that issue. The image of God is marred, but is still a noticeable trait of man. A third option is that we are fallen but there is goodness in us nonetheless. That would be the teachings of Jacob Arminius, okay? Jacob Arminius taught that we have a speck of good in us. There's goodness in us. We can work in order to please God. We can do things that God will accept, okay? That I don't agree with. But Calvinists will say, well, you don't believe in total depravity the way that we do, so you're an Arminian. Not at all. I don't believe there's any good in me at all. Before I came to Jesus Christ, I was completely and utterly depraved, totally. But I had the ability to say, that is good. I want that. 
I see a pretty flower. I don't just walk by it and ignore it. I stop and I pick it up and I say, my God, that's beautiful, right? And I smell it and I say, listen, smell that is amazing. I can perceive good. I can choose good. So somebody says, what do you want? Do you want a bag of um, uh, uh, ice cream to take home? Or do you want a bag of, you know, um, what did he always get, uh, Charlie Brown, coal? Do you want a bag of coal? And I say, well, it's summertime. I don't need to, to cool, warm myself, so I'll take the ice cream. I can choose good, right? That is what Paul is speaking about here, these type of issues. The first option is obviously incorrect, okay? A Calvinist would disagree with me, but it is obviously incorrect. The Bible states that we must believe certain things in order to be saved. The Bible notes that as fallen sons of Adam, we must respond, accept God's gift, receive God's gift, and so on. If we were totally depraved, as Calvinists claim, this wouldn't be possible. We would have to make up a new doctrine, which they did, being regenerated in order to believe, then believing, then being saved. In essence, we would be saved before we were saved. This is convoluted thinking, but this is what they teach. This is exactly what you will find in churches that teach Calvinist doctrine. Okay? The third option is not allowed by what Paul states here and elsewhere. We have no innate goodness in us at all. He's made that absolutely clear. We have no goodness in us at all until we come to Christ, and even then, the only goodness in us is Christ. It's not us. Okay? And, oh, all right, so when something good is marred, it is no longer good. It is defective. So even if I say my the image of God in me is effaced, it's not a good image of God. It's been effaced. It's not effective. And therefore, I need him to regenerate me, and that comes by me calling out to him. All right? However, there is the suitable middle ground. Man has fallen. The image of God in him is marred, but he has been given intelligence and the ability to see that which is good. With that intelligence, he can choose the good or choose the bad. All right? What did David do in the Old Testament? Did he say that I can't choose good? Not at all. He uh, time and again throughout the Psalms writes about the goodness of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God. Well, if he was totally depraved, a person without the Spirit of God because the Spirit hadn't been yet given, then what? He wouldn't be able to write those psalms, but he did. He wrote them, and the sons of Korah wrote psalms, and the sons of Asaph wrote psalms, and they all carried the same thing. I see the good in God. I will love the Lord my God because he is good. All right? This is what the Bible shows us time and time again in both Testaments. It's a category mistake to say that because we are depraved and spiritually dead, which we are, that we cannot see what is good and reach out for it. And the rest of Paul's comments in this verse verifies this. We can see the good. We can be spiritually regenerated, not by our own works, but by Christ's work when he sees that we accept what he has done. All right? Nothing good dwells in our flesh, but for to will is present with me. That's what Paul writes next. For to will is present with me. How can someone claim that total depravity requires us to first be regenerated in order to believe? The will, which Paul has already said wants to do good, right? It's obviously capable of seeing the good or wouldn't will to do good at all. Paul's words right here in Romans chapter 7 completely negate the thought of Calvinist idea of total depravity. It completely negates it because he could not write what he wrote if it was true. And yet they overlook these things and they say, well, no, that's... I'm sorry, it, it, you could not say I will to do good 
if you couldn't will to do good. You just couldn't write it, okay? So the answer to our dilemma will be found before the end of this chapter. We're going to get down to it. It's very exciting. He puts exclamation points. I don't know if they're in the Greek or not, but they sure are in the English. And you can almost read the excitement as he's writing. He probably had to stop and jump a couple times and then sit back down and write some more because he gives us the resolution to these things, all right? The answer to the, the dilemma is found. It will explain how to perform what is good. He has a will to do good, but he can't do good. He's going to tell us how to do it. All right. The thing that Paul and all of us couldn't find is presented to humanity as a gift. As beings with free will, we are ordered to take the gift. Did anybody, nobody, everybody's sleeping here. As beings with free will, we must accept the gift. Okay. If somebody forces a gift on us, is it a gift? No. Okay, it's not. All right, so as beings with free will, we must reach out and we must accept the gift. All right, if you force something on somebody, if you say you were chosen for salvation from before the, the, the uh, creation of the world and you were chosen for condemnation before the creation of the world, that's not a gift at all. That's God sovereignly making a choice, which he does make sovereign choices, and then saying, I'm just getting rid of you and I'm saving you and you have no choice in the matter. That's not a gift. That's God saying... I'm going to do this thing. No option, nothing. All right, so life application. Proverbs states, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. That's Proverbs 18, 17. It's a proverb you should always remember because every single thing that we perceive in this world, everything will come with at least one of two options. And people are going to stand up and they're going to present their case. I'm talking about everything moral, everything good, everything which could be, you know, people will give logical arguments for abortion, won't they? She was raped, right? You've heard that one a million times. That was incest. Why should she suffer with, you know? And you think, well, that sounds right. I'm not talking about people in this church. I'm saying that somebody would just say, yeah, she was raped. And then somebody else will come along and they'll say, but there's a human being inside of her womb. And you say, oh, well, that's bad. We can't do that. You know, and so you have two different arguments. And unless you're presented with both sides and you're willing to think the issue through, then you're going to make a choice which is faulty. So two arguments will be proposed, sometimes three and sometimes four arguments. And they all seem valid. And you think, what do I do? That's why you have to be grounded in Scripture for moral issues. You must be grounded in Scripture. Any moral issue comes with a consequence if you misanalyze it. Any moral issue will, okay? We need to make sure that we stay in Scripture, okay? This is true. That particular proverb is true in many ways, including in theology. Listen carefully to various viewpoints. Pray for the Lord to open your heart and understanding to the truth and use the brains that God gave you to reject what is wrong. One error in theology inevitably leads to what? more errors in theology. Be sound in your doctrine and be approved in your theology. One error will invariably have you go off. It, it's like the splintering. You know, you, they um, I saw it on Star Trek and there's a name for it. But anyway, it, it's a, a, a principle that I think Einstein taught. You have time and it goes out like this and you have one little change and all of a sudden it splinters and then it splinters again and it splinters and everything just keeps taking you further away from the original path. And that's the same thing. There's a term for it, and I'm not thinking of it right now. But anytime you make a wrong decision in your theology, you will splinter off of the correct path. 
and then you'll splinter again and again, and pretty soon you're in the Episcopal Church and you're singing to a god called Allah, right? Because they do that. What, what was that? Uh, New York, the guy sent me that article. He's up in New York walking around and he walks into an Episcopal Church because it's this beautiful old church and there's Muslims worshiping in the church. And he says, what's going on here? Oh, well, we do this every week. We have these people come in and pray with us because it's all the same God. Splinter, 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 and pretty soon you have no theology at all except bad theology. You must stay on the reasonable track. Now, once again, I'm teaching you a particular track. I believe that this is the reasonable path. What do you do when you go home? Think about it, pray about it, ask the Lord about it, and study the word some more because I could be completely wrong. I could be completely wrong in what I'm teaching you, and if I am, guess what? You're responsible for your doctrine. I will be judged more strictly, but you are responsible for your doctrine. And if you're going to believe that total depravity means that you can choose God instead of not choosing God, there is a splinter. On one of those two, there is a splinter. Or it could be that both of us are wrong, and we're both splintered off. One way or another, this Bible is teaching us truths, and every time that we get away from the very main truth of Christ, we splinter off into a bad area. And if it's a major doctrine, you continue to splinter off like the Jehovah's Witnesses did back in the 1800s, like the Mormons did, like the uh, Seventh-day Adventists did. They splintered off from what was a major doctrine. And as soon as they did that, their entire their entire look on the Bible was skewed. Everything that they look at from that point on will be skewed. You can never correct it again unless you come back and you say, this could be wrong. Everything that they teach, everything will be skewed because one major point of doctrine is wrong. Hebrews root movement is just like that. Anytime that you say that Christ didn't fulfill the fall feasts of the Lord, you have made a major skew in doctrine. Christ fulfilled the law in its entirety. Burke and I were talking about that before class today. It's a major skew in doctrine, and from that point, every single thing that you believe will be skewed from that point on. Everything. If you have a major skew. If you have just little things, you can correct them. You can weave back into the right fold. But anytime you have a major point of doctrine which is wrong, you're in a real bad place. Okay? Anyway, so verse 719. For the will, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not do to do that I practice. Now I'm going to go back to verse 17. I'm, actually, I'm going to go back to verse 15. I'm going to read them all again because it's so confusing, but you have to really stop and you have to think what Paul is saying. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. We talked about that a minute ago. To will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. And he goes and he says this now. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Okay, comments on it. This, this sentiment is very similar to verse 715. All right, I'll read that one again. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. These parallel sentiments show us quite clearly for even the hardest head to think through that we have a will which desires to do good. This is so obvious that Paul has said it twice, hoping that we won't make a mistake 
in this fact, and yet we still do. We come up with irregular doctrines which deny free will in order to establish boxes and limiting parameters which actually do not exist. The term free will is used to indicate that we have the ability to make choices. That's what free will is. I have the ability to choose something. Am I going to sit in that black chair today or am I going to sit in the green chair? I know that the black chair is, you know, Paul's favorite chair, but I really like that black chair and so I'm going to sit there. And now I've offended Paul, even though he doesn't say anything because he's such a nice guy, right? But I have a will to do good and sometimes I don't do the good, all right? These, this is free will. It's the ability to make choices. We see the good and hopefully we choose the good. However, the use of the term free will is not meant to show that we are always able to exercise this will so that it's manifest in our fleshly body. Paul shows us that we will to do good. That is our free will. That is our volitional will. However, this good that we will to do, it's not what we end up doing. This is the limiting factor on our will, restriction of the exercise of what we will. Instead of exercising this will as we often desire, we take the opposite course of action. Our flesh, our carnal selves, cause us to practice the evil, as Paul says, the evil that I will not to do. We should put the stress on the I throughout all of these verses. Anytime the word I is introduced, it will end in fault. Anytime you say I in these verses, it is because you are fallen, you are fleshly, and you will end in fault. If we say the will that Jesus wants, then we will prevail. So he is making this, this certain statement again and again. I will this, I will this, I will this. And what is it that's the problem? It's me. That's what Paul is telling us. I am the one that's at fault. It happened in Eden. It continued to happen throughout history as people have set aside his good laws and attempted to merit his favor on their own. The fact is that if intent to do was to do good was good enough, then the majority of the people of the world would be on the highway to heaven, wouldn't they? If intent to do good was good enough, we'd all be going to heaven. Because Muslims going into a mall and pulling that switch and blowing up 500 people, I intended to do good. I thought I was pleasing to the God that I'm serving. So if intent is all that matters, we're all on the highway to heaven. Doesn't make any difference. Somebody that goes to a statue of Ganesha over in India and they bow down to Ganesha and they say, Ganesha, I hope that you like me and I hope that you'll give me all that money that I want in my bank account this week and I, you know, I don't want to work very hard but I hope it'll come. And he's asking a piece of stone to bless him. Dear Ganesha, right? He intends to do good. It, it, he means good, so it must be good, right? If intent is all that matters, then we're all doing the right thing. It doesn't. Intent does not matter unless it is intent which is aligned with God's will, okay? However, intent inevitably leads to failure when I is involved. I would call it the I problem. The flesh thrives on the I of our carnal selves. The free will we are given, and it is intended as a gift of God's grace, is not for the ex exercise of I, but for the choice of God. Right? He gave us free will. Then he says, I said, what did he say to, um, was it Moses or Joshua? I set before you the, uh, today these choices. Joshua. What's that? Joshua. And he says, you can choose the right way or you can choose the wrong way. He says, choose life. I set these before you this day. Choose life. Whose will is he offering? He's offering his will. 
but he's saying to you, you use your will to choose my will and you will live, right? If you use your will to satisfy you, then you will not live because I always corrupts, always. And the more I there is, the more corrupting there is. We see it all the time. We see it in Korea right now. What's the old saying? Um, uh, total absolute power corrupts absolutely because it's all about him. He has all the power he wants in the world. Hitler had all of the power he wanted in the world, and every time I steps in and it gets more power, it is never enough, and I continues to corrupt, and it continues to corrupt, and it continues to corrupt. It never seeks out God in that form. But when God says, I give you this choice, and this choice is the right choice, even though it may not be a fun thing to do, it's the right thing to do because God has offered it. God's will is always the right will. Okay? So, the doctrine of grace is not abolished through the teaching of free will, as Calvinists claim. It is established. Okay? Everybody got that? Calvinists claim that free will is abolished in man. It's not. It is established. I'm giving you this choice. It is your choice, but I'm giving you this choice with what I say is best. Will you believe what I say, or are you going to believe yourself, the devil, your wife, whatever? Choose what I have given you, and all will go well. Okay, I'm going to read both of those sentences again so you can grasp this. The free will that we are given, and it is indeed a gift of God's grace, is not for the exercise of I, but for the choices for God. The doctrine of grace is not abolished through the teaching of free will, as Calvinists claim, the doctrine of free will is established. First, as a grace, we have been given this gift. And as a grace, this gift continues in us even after the fall. Free will, as was noted by Thomas Aquinas in our evaluation of Romans 7.13, which was last week, was what caused the fall. To state otherwise would be to ascribe the fault or the sin to God. There had to have been free will at the fall, because if there wasn't, then the only logical place that sin could be imputed was to God. He created man fallible, he created man without good laws, and man fell, and therefore it's God's fault. That's the only choice if you say there was not free will at the fall. He established that, Thomas Aquinas, but it was already established in the Bible itself. Okay, He simply took the Bible and evaluated it properly. Secondly, the exercising of one's free will in choosing the good that we see in no way implies that we are either, either able, or I'm sorry, we are able to either subjugate the evil nor accomplish the good. I've got to read that to you again. The exercising of one's free will in choosing the good that we see in no way implies that we are either able to subjugate the evil nor accomplish the good. All right? We can't do that. We can't subjugate the evil in us. It is impossible. Only God can do that. These are graces which are bestowed upon us after we make the choice. God does the work and we receive it by faith. Thus, grace is fully established in the doctrine of free will. It is fully established completely and absolutely. It's not abrogated, as Calvinists would say. The doctrine of free will is established in what Paul is writing right here. Okay, Calvinism in this respect is so far from the truth of the doctrine of Paul that to accept it is to inevitably be led down one wrong path after another. As I said, you've got a skew, you've got another one, you've got another one. You've got to deny the meaning of words in order to say that I don't have free will. When Jesus said John 3.16, I did it earlier, I added in a couple words so that you would get the absurdity of it. You have to deny the meaning of the word believe, right? Romans 10, 9 and 10, the, the 
the principal salvation explanation for all human beings on this planet. If you are going to tell somebody about Jesus, you need to lead them to Romans 10, 9, and 10. And you read it to them and you say that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does the word believe mean if it doesn't mean you have free will to choose something? But Calvinists have to actually deny the meaning of the word. Okay, in verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You have to deny the literal meaning of words in order to deny free will. I know this is a tedious section. Paul's writings are very hard to grasp, and my words don't make it much easier. It's very hard to understand these things. But the fact is that if we don't understand them, the next church that we go to someday is going to teach something, and you're going to say this. And the next thing you know, you think, why are we sending missionaries overseas? Why are people going down to the projects? Why are we sending people over to Texas to help them well, we have our own problems over here. We negate all of the reasons. Now, they will say that's not true. Calvinists will say, well, we send missionaries out. Well, why are you doing it? It doesn't make any sense, okay? If God's will is unstoppable and he selected that person for salvation before the world was created, nothing can thwart it. Absolutely nothing can thwart it. And so there's no point in you sending that missionary. You are wasting our money that we could be spending on coffee and donuts in church this week because there's no need to send them. So I want you to cancel their mission trip and I want more coffee and donuts next week and everything will be fine because God's will cannot be thwarted. The fact is God's will cannot be thwarted, but he gives us the, the means of getting that out to the people of the world. When he said, go forth and make disciples, you know, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it wasn't because he had already regenerated them in order to believe, he had sent them out so that they could believe, okay? All of these doctrines are important because of the mechanics of the church that you're in. If you're in a church that doesn't function properly, then you have all of these dilemmas running around in your head. That's why this is important. It's only a few verses. We'll be through them soon, and then we'll be on to some other stuff. But despite the difficult nature of them, they show us really important lessons about what Paul is saying here, okay? So, These graces which are bestowed upon us after we make the choice, God does the work and we receive by faith. Thus, grace is fully established in the doctrine of free will. Calvinism in this respect is so far from the truth of the doctrine of Paul that to accept it inevitably leads one down one wrong path after another. Okay, life application. When reading the Bible, the simplest and most obvious explanation in the reading of the text is usually the wisest choice. However, this cannot be applied to single verses which have been ripped out of their context. Instead, everything must remain in context and then be taken with obvious intent of the wording. You have been given free will to accept or reject this premise. Choose well. I threw that in as a joke and she got it. She was smiling as soon as I said it. I'm, I'm telling you that free will is a tenet of the Bible and then I say at the end of it, you've got free will to choose that. And if you don't believe that, then why would you accept it? But you do. You have free will to believe what I just said is true or not. And if you have free will to believe it or not, then it completely negates the fact that you would not have free will. So, there you go. Verse 720. Okay, where are we now? If I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. But where did the sin come from? We've already talked about that. Where did the sin come from? From the fall of Adam. But where did that come from? The introduction of 
You know, free will is there, but the law. Introducing the law, who said that? You said that. You said that. Okay. The law is what brings in the sin in people. If God didn't give a law, we wouldn't be sinning, right? That's right. But as you said, the law of Moses, all of a sudden you don't just have one small law. You've got a body of 613 laws. And you say, wow, I can do all of this, no problem. And the next thing you know, they're building a calf within minutes of Moses going up, actually days, but he's gone up in the mountain and they're building a calf. Immediately they fall into sin. As soon, as soon as Aaron and his sons are consecrated on the last day of ordination, what happens? Two of his sons are killed because they violated the presence of the Lord. And that you're going to see that go all the way through. Every time something is introduced in the Old Testament, you will see a a failure of those people. I'll give you a perfect example of this before we go on. Let me take you to chapter 17. I started typing um, chapter 17 sermon uh, on Monday. And uh, actually, I think I did the whole chapter. I think it was one sermon, one chapter. Yes, it was. And um, it says, um, let me just read you a couple of the things it says in there. It's about the sanctity of blood, okay? Um, they are to uh, whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man okay we'll go down to another one Um, they shall no longer offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot okay let me go down to another one um uh, any of the strangers who dwell among you and offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Okay? Let me go down to another one. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Okay, that's four. There's probably four or five more. What do you think is recorded after this in Scripture. Every one of them I just read you. A violation of that law. I just read you four out of probably nine in that chapter. Every single one of them somewhere in the Old Testament is a violation of that law that he gave. And we're going to go through dozens and dozens and dozens. Here's one right here. You shall do no injustice uh, uh, in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. Guess what? Violation in the Old Testament. You should not hate your brother in your heart. Violation in the Old. Every single precept that we see in the Law of Moses, without fail, we're going to see a violation of. Now, I'm not talking about things like uh, two uh, two uh, linen and wool being sewn together. He said, "Don't do it," and there's not a violation of that recorded. Okay, but of these moral laws that he gives, every single one of them, we are going to see a violation in the law. And you know what? Not one of them would be a violation if he didn't give that law, would it? Not one of them. He gave these laws to them, and they said, everything you say, we will do, and we will obey. And they didn't obey any of them. We're going to see this all the way through. A widow or divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot, he shall not marry. Right? Okay, speaking of this and all of these things, we're going to see again and again and again. We're going to see people doing things that they were not supposed to do. All right. It shows you the immense grace and wisdom. I'm sorry, the immense grace and mercy of God that He would give these laws, that they would violate it, and He didn't just snuff them out from the very beginning, all the way through. You get to the book of Ezekiel. What are the priests doing? They're violating the priestly laws. They're 
harming the people, the judges of the people are give, passing bad laws all the way through. Book of Deuteronomy, what does it say about the, the responsibilities of a king? He shall not do what? He shall not take many, many, wives. many wives. He shall not have many horses. horses. He shall not uh, gather to himself much gold and silver. She's got it memorized. Guess what Solomon did? He had many wives. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He had horses everywhere. He had silver and gold heaped up like so. Every single thing that the king was told not to do, he did. Right? Why do you think that's recorded there? It's to show us exactly what Paul is showing us here. You want to know why we're studying these hard to, to understand words in the book of Romans? It's because we want to understand what's going on inside of us. And when we understand what's going on inside of us, things will go better with us. And if we don't, we're the only ones that are going to suffer. God isn't going to make you have free will to come to a Bible study or not, or to read his word or not. He's not going to force you to do these things, but you are the ones that will suffer when you don't do these things. And when you have a dilemma and you say, why did I do that? Open up the, the book of Romans, turn to chapter 7 and read it again and say, you know what, Paul did it too. I'm not as bad as I thought, even though I'm really bad. Right? We're all in the same boat together. Thank God for Jesus. That's why we're doing this, is to keep reminding us that we have Jesus. Thank goodness for Jesus. Thank goodness for Jesus. And then, what can you do when you see somebody that isn't saved and they're going through a dilemma in their life? What can you do? Take them to Romans 7. You can say, this is something we all struggle with, but there's a difference between you and me. I'm handsome and you're not. Oh, no. I know Jesus and you don't. Now let me introduce you to him, okay? That would be a lie if I said that, so I don't want to do that. You're handsome and I'm not. That would be it. Okay. Anyway, here we go. Um, let's see here. Um, this verse, I just read you, and I'm going to read you again because I want to make sure that you know what I'm talking about. No, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And as I said, from the law is the knowledge of sin. This verse repeats and consolidates the thought of verses 16 and 17. Why would Paul do this, saying the same thing a second time? The reason is that it is highlighting the issue, and it is verifying the two fours found in verses 18 and 19. In other words, he is being extremely precise in his thoughts. He has to be, because this is such a, a major thing that if he has one word wrong, just one, everything will fall apart. And so he's repeating it exactingly, and he's explaining why he said four, and then four again, okay? He's being precise in his thoughts. These thoughts could be considered improperly contemplated and relayed by a surface reading of the wording. In order to substantiate that he is, in fact, correct in his analysis, he has stated the truth of the matter, verses 16 and 17, and then defended it in a way which highlighted the truth of his thoughts, verses 18 and 19, and then restated what had been found to be correct in the first place. Sometimes it's important to state the same thing more than once so that it can properly be understood. Sometimes it's important to state the same thing more than once so that it can be properly understood. Everybody get it? With a few intervening words of explanation, a matter can be verified and then repeated. So, sometimes it's important to state the same thing more than once so that it can be properly <laughs> understood. Thrice. And sometimes thrice. Life application. Repetition can never harm when instructing others in complicated matters. Also, repetition can never harm when instructing others in complicated matters. I, uh, my 
wonderful brother John and his wife Kathy who came and visited us, I, I, he said, you know, you say sometimes in the Bible studies, I'm sorry if I repeated this. And he said, don't say that because I need to have you repeat things. And I realize I do too because I'll hear a commentary on something or I'll read my own commentary and I'll say, you know, I never thought of that when I'm the one that wrote it. So it's just you need to have these things repeated. You need to meditate on, what did we say in the Psalms today? Psalm 119, meditate on the word, study the word, know the precepts, the laws, the ordinances, the statutes, the precepts, because we need to stay in them. You don't read the Bible one day, you've gone one day without reading the Bible, right? You go two days without it, it's so much easier to make it a third. It is so easy to stop and get into old habits. Stay in the word, repeat Repetition. All right, verse, oh, we better not do it. This is kind of long. Let me see here. Hang on a sec. 721, do we have time? All right, I'm going to blow through 721, and we're going to make it. 721, (laughs) I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who, you know what, I'm going to stop because that really fits with 22. And if I read that today, it's it, it, we're going to have to do 21 again anyway. So go ahead. We'll talk for a couple minutes. I have a question. Um, yes. I've heard different pastors talking about Romans 7 saying this only refers to unbelievers when, when Paul is talking about himself when he didn't know the Lord. I, I went through that last week, okay. yes. And I talked, there, there are several, I think I gave four options. Unbelievers, it's speaking of Paul. Um, under the law when he knew the law but he didn't know Christ and I I gave four different options and the answer is it is speaking of human nature so it's not just unbelievers and it's not just believers and it's not believers who are looking back on their old life it is human nature it is the struggle which even he has in this day which all of us have in this day it is our nature and so the, the, the point that Paul will make at the very end is that the human nature must be overridden by the Spirit. And that's what I was saying just earlier as you guys were walking in, is that um, if we are not in the Word, which was given to us by, by God, by the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit that gave us the Word, we're not going to know what God expects of us. I do not believe in extra-biblical revelation. I do not. You know that. If you believe in extra-biblical revelation, that's fine. I don't hate you. I just disagree with you. I I do hugely disagree with charismatic churches where the pastor stands in the pulpit and says, the Lord gave me a word. And he says it 15 times during a sermon. I, I do not believe that. I think that he will be judged and held accountable for every single time that he has ever said that. And some, some of them say it 10 times, 20 times in a single sermon or a single meeting and then he says it every week for what 20 years i do not believe that the lord gave him a word unless it came from here now you can say the lord gave me a word i was reading out of here and he enlightened something to me and i'll agree with that but when somebody just says oh the lord gave me a word that somebody needs to uh, come and uh, help us out clean the church this weekend because remember we went up to watch uh, to visit zola at that charismatic church um after we had gone to israel he came to florida and we went up to that charismatic church and this pastor stood up there and he said things like that. He said, well, the Lord gave me a word just now that we have a need in the ministry that the carpets need to be washed. And he told me, and he's, he's making claims right there, making the feel, people feel guilty. Somebody's going to stand up and come and clean the carpets instead of hiring a carpet cleaner. It's the professional to do that, right? And he did this throughout the entire thing. The Lord told me this and the Lord told me that. And the Lord didn't say anything to that guy. Not a word. But that's what? Power trip. It is a power trip, and he's going to be judged. If he's saved, he's saved, but he will be, James 3, 1, right 
into embarrassment when he stands before the Lord because the Lord did never speak to him. I do not believe in extra biblical revelation because this is fully sufficient if we're willing to study it. So we'll go ahead and say a prayer a couple minutes early today, but if I get in the 721, we're just going to have to go on to 22 and we don't have time. So here we go. Heavenly Father, thank you for these people that are so willing to sit here and, and go through these, not tedious, nothing in your word is tedious, but mind stretching verses which are to the point where sometimes it hurts for us to try to think what are we being told and even an analysis analysis of it doesn't always help sometimes we just need you to to open up our minds in a new way and maybe give us an example right from real life and so i would pray that if there's something that somebody is stumbling over right now with what we talked about today that they will be driving and they'll they'll see something in real life that will lead them to that or maybe something on Star Trek which will show them what's going on. Whatever it is, Lord, you can always get the word to the people to be understood if they are willing to search it out. And so I would pray above all that they would do that, that they would be contemplating your word, meditating on it and saying, Lord, why is this here? And then open their minds to it in whatever way you, you do. We love you, Lord. It is such a great word that you've given us, how precious it is. And once again, we pray for those people that are are struggling, that are having difficulties, that are traveling, that are without homes in Texas, that are uh, facing all kinds of troubles around this world. And we've got people that are attending here from even Australia, our dear sister Lisa over there who comes and attends with us. And we would pray that she'd be happy today in her own heart. Thank you for attending to our needs, each and every one of us. And Lord, how good you are to us. And because of that, we praise you and we do so endlessly in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, let me back this baby up. Oh, they showed on the TV Louisiana too. Oh, they're get, they're getting dumped on with rain. Absolutely, I saw that this morning. Wow, wow, wow! Break. Yes. Okay. All right. Joshua twenty-four. Thank you. All right. Have a wonderful week, everybody. We love you so much. Take care.